Joshua chapter 23. After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials, and said to them, I am very old. You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. Remember how I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Now I'm about to go the way of the earth, of all the earth, You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so he will bring on you all the evil things he has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land he has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, The Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Good morning. My name's Kirby. If I haven't met you before, it's my privilege uh, to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Would you bow with me, uh, bow your heads with me if you're comfortable to pray together as we begin. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the opportunity to gather and to worship in your word together. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would apply to the hearts of your people your word from Joshua 23. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know if you remember a time when you used to ask your parents, when I get older, can I, can I drive a car? Can I be an astronaut? Can I start a business? Can I be a rock star? Well, lately, I think I'm getting to the age where I'm getting these questions and I'm having to begin by saying, when you get older, you'll understand. When you get older, you know that won't really work. When you get older, you won't have these kind of ideas. Somewhere between being a child and a parent seems to be the perfect age, doesn't it? It's the time when you're old enough to do stuff, all the stuff you've ever wanted to, but on the other hand, if you mucked it up, you would still have enough time to start again and have a second chance. 
It's no surprise then that our culture really celebrates the golden age of youth. Somewhere in the middle of a certain age, I haven't quite worked it out, if time stood still, it'd just be perfect. A lot of you actually are right in the middle of this age. But time waits for nobody. Time moving on means change. And we're afraid of getting older because we're afraid of change. And that's where we start today. Joshua 23 is about an old man. Verses 1 to 2 reads, After a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges, and officials. The situation seems peaceful. Israel is at rest from her enemies. But underneath, there's unease. Why? Because Joshua is very old. And his age will trigger change, transition. It's a crisis, actually, because there's no succession plan in place. So Joshua calls a meeting. And it's not just a meeting of his trusted advisors. It's a national cabinet. The elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of all Israel. These leaders represented the entire people of God. And the number one question in everyone's mind is, who's coming after Joshua? Who's going to lead Israel to finish off their mission in Canaan? But these aren't the questions that Joshua wants to answer. He wants to leave Israel with a message. You can imagine Joshua in his deathbed. And the message he gives three times, actually, is basically, God always keeps his promises. Stick with him and live. He gives this message because he's actually worried about Israel struggling spiritually against three threats. First, the threat of apathy. Will Israel actually get up and fight to claim their inheritance? Second, the threat of apostasy. Will Israel turn away from God when he's gone? And third, the threat of covenant breaking. Will Israel break their covenant, this agreement, this arrangement with God, and lose all of the covenant promises? But sliding into spiritual decline isn't unique to Israel. Just as Israel was waiting for an inheritance, Christians are also waiting for an inheritance. The Apostle Peter uses this word inheritance to describe the Christian's hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4 says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil, or fade. The church is the New Testament people of God, waiting to inherit what God promises in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with himself, and eternal life with him. But Christ hasn't come back. And the church faces this same trio of threats. Because we're getting tired of waiting for Jesus. Because we're getting comfortable in the world around us. And because it's, frankly, easier to turn away from God sometimes. So we hear Joshua's message, as we hear Joshua's message this morning to the people of Israel, I want to encourage you to ask, what does this mean for the people of God today? Now let's get into the three points. First, because God promises to fight for you, Israel, stick with him and you will win. 
Like a good leader, Joshua wants the people to think about what they've already experienced of God's promise. This isn't something new. Just before he dies, Moses, the previous leader, gives the Israel a final pep talk. He appeals to their experience of God's deliverance of this people from Egypt, from slavery, through his faithfulness. Deuteronomy 29 Verse 2 reads, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh and all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. And Joshua is doing the same, but with the story of the Canaanite conquest. He says in verse 3, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. I'm making a connection here with Moses in Deuteronomy. Firstly, because I want to show you that Joshua is doing exactly what his mentor did. He wants Israel to see God's faithfulness to his promises through successive leaders. He wants them to remember there's an ongoing covenant that was bigger and longer lasting than him or them. God had made a covenant with Abraham and Moses, a promise bound by oath to give them the land of Canaan. And so just as God was faithful to Joshua in his lifetime in helping him conquer the land, he would continue to do so for Israel even after Joshua is gone. The Lord your God himself would push the nations out for your sake. He will drive them out before you and you will take possession of the land. What must they do? Well, here's the second connection to Moses in Deuteronomy because In verse 6, the NIV says, be very strong, be careful to obey. But I think the ESV actually puts it closer to the meaning, and it actually reads, therefore be very strong to keep and to do. You see, it's not that Israel have to be strong and then obey God, but they have to go for it strongly. They have to strive resolutely, determinedly, with conviction to keep and do what is commanded in the law of Moses. And if you look at Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. It's actually the very same thing that Joshua himself was commissioned with on his appointment as a leader. Joshua 1.7 says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my, my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. But it's different now because Israel is actually in the land. They're in a situation where they live amongst the remaining nations. And, and because of that, Joshua, he had to add this warning, emphasize this warning, don't mix with the people. Verse 7, it says, they're not to associate with the nations because it would lead them to, to invoke, to call upon the names of the pagan gods of the Canaanites. Instead, they're to hold fast to the Lord your God, to cling unto God. Now, I don't know about you, but this year's three-month lockdown really wore me down in my fitness regime. I I was at first determined to go for a weekly routine of runs and exercise and, and keep active. I wanted to go out at least once a day. After all, it was a freedom that was limited. You know, when the government tells you that you can only go out this amount of time, this place, this number of people, then you sort of suddenly become very super motivated. You've got to get out there and get it in. But it started getting difficult because 
there was confusion about, you know, how far you could go, who you could go with, you know, how long. And then the weather wasn't great for a couple of weeks. After a few non-exercise weeks, the motivation started flagging. And after we were doing all this work at home and homeschooling, yeah, we deserve a little break. So slowly, my daily outing became twice a week, and then it became once a week, and then not at all. <laughs> my running app now tells me I haven't been out for a run for about 40 days, and it informs me that my fitness has probably deteriorated by 20%. So what happened? My resolve was worn down bit by bit by these extenuating circumstances, things which took me away from my determination. And with each day, the mental and emotional battle just to get out there and go up the hill again just became that much harder. I have become apathetic. Israel was getting comfortable living amongst the nations. They didn't have to drive the nations out if they didn't need to. Uh, there was enough land to share, enough for everyone to live together. But Israel forgot that God's command was to drive the nations out. They forgot that him, he was judging the nations while fulfilling his promise to Abraham and Moses. There was a mission to fight, and Israel lost the will to fight. So first, Joshua reminds Israel that God has and will continue to fight for them. This was to shake them out of apathy. Remember the battle of Jericho. Remember the battle of Ai. Remember all the kings that you've defeated because God was fighting for you. Don't stop fighting. God has fought for you and will drive out your enemies. He will drive them out so you can take possession of the land that he has promised to you. Stick with him and win. And like the people of Israel, the church needs to fight apathy because the church can get comfortable in this world too. It can begin to think that this world, this time, this life is all that there is. More than that, it, begin to, it begins to lose its taste and wonder for God's grace. Uh, listen to Jesus as he speaks to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. What does apathy look like for the church, for God's people? Here's what it looks like. It looks like a group of people going through the motions of doing a bunch of religious stuff on Sunday. Uh, they call this worship, but they've forgotten who they worship and why they're worshipping him. They've forgotten what it's like to be excited to encounter God each week to meet with him. The church can become apathetic for God's glory. And the church can lose its desire to hear from God. It can put aside God's word. It can forget to take care about what's taught and how it's been put into practice. The church can become apathetic about God's word. But most of all, the church can begin to forget that they're waiting for her victorious king. They can profess faith in the risen Lord who reigns over them, but forget what he's done for them. How this king was sent by God on a rescue mission to bring rebels back into his kingdom, to extract them out of a world destined for destruction. How he sacrifices himself and gives his spotless life in exchange for theirs. It can become blasé about grace and mercy. The church can become apathetic for Jesus. And what do we need to shake us out of apathy? We need to hear again the truth 
about Jesus' victory and dominion over all of God's enemies. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And at the centre of his argument is the stunning fact of Christ Jesus' resurrection. Because if Christ did not rise, then he has not defeated death, and our faith is in vain. But Christ did rise. In doing so, he has triumphed over every earthly and spiritual enemy and releases believers from the power of sin. Uh, We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Friends, Christ's victory reminds us that Christ has and will fight for the faith of his people. Let that thought sink deep and let it be the beginning of a victory over apathy in our spiritual life. Know and cling on to this promise of God for all who belong to him. He will fight for you until you have obtained your inheritance. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Second Joshua says to Israel, God promises to empower you for your mission. Stick with him and you won't cry. We've got to remember that when Israel came out of Egypt as slaves, they had no idea how to wage war. They were not a warlike people. They were a puny band of nomadic tribes. And God brought them into the wilderness and taught them war. And so Joshua says, The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one is able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand, just as he promised. That's an amazing promise. Imagine one Israelite soldier putting to flight a thousand enemies. It's the stuff of legends, the kind of things that make great superhero movies. It's no wonder Israel was able to subdue the nations in Canaan who were greater and more powerful than them. But here's the thing. It was the Lord who gave them power. God empowered his people to conquer the land and possess it. God gave them an aura of invincibility. Like a shield that protected them and attacked for them, God moved about them around the nation, so that the nations around them were afraid of them. God paved the way for Israel's domination of Canaan. And so here's why Joshua reiterates God's promise. He wants them to, be, to remember to be very careful to love the Lord your God. It's the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the reason is because the flip side of this wholehearted devotion to God is to turn away. Verses 12 to 13 follows. If you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. And see the stepwise fashion here. It just begins with making friends with the nations, doing stuff together. And you get so influenced that and enchanted by their culture and customs, you begin to live like them. And then you, you consent to marry them and take on their religion, most of which were involving pagan rites. And before too long, you have completely turned away from God. Notice that the complete turning isn't where the turning starts. The turning begins the moment you begin to follow God with less than wholehearted devotion. And when that happens, Joshua says, 
the nations become a snare and a trap. Instead of hunting them, Israel becomes the prey. The nations would be whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. Israel would suffer and the nations would be like instruments of torture. And ultimately they would perish from this good land. There's an irony here that shouldn't be lost on us. Israel is in the land that God has promised to them. It's pretty much in their hands. But if they accommodate and associate with these nations, if they lapse in their devotion to the one true living God, then this power they hold over the nations would melt away. Their power would leave them. They'd be swallowed up in this promised land, just like their ancestors were swallowed up and buried in the wilderness. Uh, that's the horror of every superhero movie, isn't it? Their superpowers leave them. You know, Spider-Man can't shoot Webb, or Superman loses his strength. The supervillain somehow has found a way to disarm them and incapacitate them, and they're no longer protected by their powers. Joshua warns the Israelites to live their gaze away from their outward physical success to the inward state of their hearts. He's calling them to shine a light on what they desire and crave for because the sin of apostasy is a sin of the heart. It's the sin of turning away from God and abandoning him. And when that happens, God's power will leave them. Sometimes, like the Israelites, Christians live in this world as though our fight is only against the world, but it's deeper than this. At the heart of it, our fight is against everything that turns our gaze and devotion away from God. It's a spiritual battle. We're aligned either with God or the values of the world. We, we can't do both. And the first turning leads to the next until the turnings become a complete abandonment of God. And this rejection is worse than not knowing God in the first place because it's a repudiation of his goodness and his faithfulness. The author of Hebrews warns us, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. One of the most devastating effects of cancer is that when it has spread to the nervous system. And not only has the cancer cells the ability to destroy health of an organ, it can markedly impact a person's bodily function. Like cancerous tumour, sin has a double effect of paralysing and destroying our spiritual health. The moment Israel turns from God, they become powerless and they're exposed to destruction. And the moment Christians turn away from Christ and the cross, their distinctive mark as God's people, saved by his grace and his mercy, are lost. How can we keep ourselves from a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I think Joshua's word is a good one. The Lord empowers his people to fight against their sin so they can no longer have a hold on them. As long as we deal with sin as a matter of bad habits, just pruning leaves off a bad tree rather than cutting it off at its root, as long as living a Christian life is about being seen to be good rather than grappling with being fundamentally sinful, we're not freed from the guilt of sin. But when we get a sense of the spiritual and the cosmic dimension of this conflict, we realize we're part of a, a bigger conflict. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly realms. The challenge this morning is to live the kind of life that declares this struggle and God's victory in a way that glorifies God. So if this morning you find yourself in yourself, anything that causes you ever so slightly to to be turning from God, like pride that that stops you from trusting in him rather than, than yourself, like cynicism which keeps your heart hardened to the kindness and mercy of God and can give root, rise to a root of bitterness, like weariness, which can dull our ability to, to hope in God's good promises. Know this. Know that God in his kindness and in his love for you has promised to never leave you alone in Christ. You know what Jesus said to his followers when he was taking up into heaven? He said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ will never leave you, even if you fall into sin. As long as you breathe and have life, God's hands are open wide to sinners. And so if you hear today the call of the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus to bring sinners home, if you hear and feel the Spirit convicting you of sin, don't turn away. He's calling you home to God. Don't turn away. He's acting powerfully to apply the sin-destroying power of the cross on your heart. And third, Joshua says to Israel, God promises to do good to you. Stick with him and you won't die. You know, in some of those epic martial arts movies, the master dies in the first scene. Uh, He's lying there, he's mortally wounded, bleeding, he's gasping for air, All his disciples are gathered around him, so you know all the characters are there, including the one who ends up becoming the traitor, the villain. And he says, one last thing, whatever you do, don't open the bottle. Or beware the man with a green tattoo. (laughs) Joshua is doing that here. All of Israel's leaders are there. He wants to make sure they get this last message. And this time, he repeats the same thing again three times. Verse 14, he says, Not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. And then every promise has been fulfilled. And then finally again, not one has failed. And what's he driving at? He's driving at the fact that all of God's promises are kept to the T. But it cuts both ways. If God's promises for good things is kept, God's promise for evil against those who disobey him are also kept. God doesn't just withdraw his protection. No, he becomes actively involved in judging. He doesn't just leave you to your own devices. No, his anger burns against you. The warning to Israel is that God will bring on them evil until they're destroyed from the good land he's promised. When they run after other gods, turn away from him, and break that covenant, his anger will burn against them just like it does and did against the Canaanites. So this third and final word is Joshua's reminder to Israel that they have a covenant arrangement with God, that he would be their God, and in obedience and faith to him, they would be his people. But if they broke it, God's curse and anger would be upon them. One of the most frightening experiences of my life was standing in front of a blaze and trying to put it out. One summer's night, it was hot, and something caught a light in the shed in the backyard. I could see some orange flickering in the distance, and I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll just get a hose, and I'll put it out. 
As I went out to check it, I could smell smoke. I could hear the crackling of flames, and a few pops came out, just like gunshots, and I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, At first, I thought, you know, I'll just pull out this hose. And as I pull it out and turn on the... It just looked ridiculous. This hose was dribbling water, and in front of me was a wall of flames up to my head height. And I knew at that moment that if I didn't call the fire department, it would be real trouble. Ten minutes waiting for the fire truck were really nerve-wracking. But when they did come and the firemen rolled out, all I could say to them in my powerless state was fire in the back, fire. That's where it is. Against God's anger, there is no human remedy, friends. We're not talking about a momentary flash of fire, of hot anger. We're talking about relentless, increasing, burning anger. When Israel eventually strayed from God, their ultimate humiliation would be in exile. They were expelled from the good land God had promised to them. Now, we're tempted, aren't we, when we look at these old covenant people, we say, if only Israel had done this or that, it's easy, isn't it, to carry within ourselves some self-righteousness, to say that we're not that foolish, but that's exactly how foolish we are. We can't see within our hearts the idols that causes offense to God every single day. The book of Romans tells us that Jew and Gentile alike are under God's anger for our sins. There's no one who escapes, and ultimately what we need is an anger bearer. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the chosen one that God has sent to bear his anger. On the cross, Christ Jesus bore the anger of God and the curse and judgment of God on our sin. And if you want an idea of what that looks like, it's like this. Jesus, though he clung to his heavenly father in faithful obedience, he was treated like the son who turned away. Though he was holy and kept himself blameless, he was trapped by someone close to him. He was snared and captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. He bore the whips of the Gentile governor, and he wore the shameful crown of thorns designed to inflict pain and mock him. Snared and trapped, whipped and crowned with thorns. That was the Lord Jesus bearing judgment meant for us, meant for me and meant for you. And then as he died with his arms stretched out and nails through his hands on the cross, he gave himself to bear the anger of God, God's judgment on sin. And there he died utterly forsaken by man and God. Brothers and sisters, this morning we have in Jesus Christ the bearer of God's anger and judgment for the sake of his people. And on that cross, he makes a supreme demonstration of power against the spiritual forces fighting against God. In the end, there was really one message only for Israel. Stick with God. Stick with him because he fights for you. Stick with him because he empowers you. Stick with him because his words never fail. But while the Israelites had an unfinished conquest, Christians have Jesus who said, it is finished as he died. His death and resurrection marks the end of his conquest and the beginning of his reign. If you believe in Christ Jesus this morning, you are covered by his blood and receive God's pardon and not his anger. You have the right and obligations of a citizen of God's kingdom. You have the promised good of God before you. So let these final words of Joshua ring in our ears. God promises good to you. Stick with him and you won't die. If you want a flavor, what's coming up 
in the Old Testament for the people of Israel. Joshua 23 gives you three big hints. Apathy, apostasy, and covenant breaking. The rest of the Old Testament just takes us through a whole lineup of judges, kings, and prophets, but the same three things come up again and again. And people lose their spiritual taste for the spiritual call of God. They begin to turn away from him, and he allows them a time of repentance until their sin reaches a point of no return, and then they die for their sin. And each time, God leaves room for his grace and mercy, promising a new season of hope and a coming rescuer. And Christians, we see that coming rescuer as the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God throws open the gates of heaven to all who come by faith in his life, death, and resurrection. But don't forget, we're not immune to this triplet of sins. So, Sweck, this morning, hear this as a final word. God promises to fight for your soul. Stick with him and you will win. God promises to empower you for holiness. Stick with him and you won't cry. God promises to do good to you. Stick with him and you won't die. God always keeps his promises. Stick with him and live.